0: Hey, everybody. I've got Buddy Green on the show. This is amazing. He's a, one of the best musicians that I know. Uh, what a dear guy. And, of course, you know him as probably the, the most phenomenal harmonica player in the world. Uh, and he's written some amazing songs. One of my favorite songs, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, so much to talk about in his music career, but also just the fact that he was uh, a part of this project with my dad. So, hey, Buddy. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff.
1: How Good are to be you? With you this morning?
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a time where we all just do things from home, which you know, uh <laughs> yeah. Some people are are getting to know; the rest of us are pretty used to doing work from all sorts of places. Um,
1: <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I've been a hermit for a little while now. Um, as a As I've been getting more off the road and and uh, and into home life, uh, this hadn't been that much of an adjustment for me. I was telling you a little bit before our interview started that um, I'm woefully ignorant when it comes to technology, so I wish I knew a whole lot more than I do so I could well, I think that's, so I you can know, do a few more things. I
0: think what's great is that you know maybe we'll all have to rely a little less on technology and just pull out the acoustic instruments and, and, and go with that. I mean, I, I have been producing more than writing over the past five years, and when you get into that producing rut, you're basically turning knobs, and you're not playing as much, so right uh, well,
1: I am playing that's about the only thing I can do is sit down here by myself and <laughs> it feels like I'm back in college, you know, just a lonely college boy well, hey, that's in my, that's a in my great... room with my acoustic guitar <laughs> man that's maybe that's
0: a great place to start just where Where did music <laughs> begin in your life?
1: It began when I was a little boy um I always sang along with the radio and we just, you know, and my dad really encouraged that in me. He he just thought it was great. So he would, when we would visit friends, he'd, you know, stand me up on the kitchen table and say, Hey, sing that song for these guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he was kind of always my biggest fan. And when I was about 10, uh, the Beatles came to America. I was already messing around with the ukulele at the time. And when I saw those guys, and I mean, like so many people in my generation, um, you know, it just it just flipped the switch for me, Um, and I I wanted to do something like that, whatever it was. And so um, I got together a group of friends in the neighborhood, and before long, we had three ukuleles and a set of bongos, and called ourselves the Flying Beatles. And (laughs) and, that's (laughs) awesome. And then, with, within about a, a year, we had traded up to guitars and drums, and uh, the name had switched to Buddy's Buddies because I was kind of the obvious front guy. And uh, that I had a, we had some version of that band for about the next four or five years. Um, and um, after disbanding, um, it was probably in college that yeah I, that I picked up my acoustic guitar and just started messing around with that and. And um, during my college years, it, it kind of, the, the spark was, you know, sort of reignited, and, um, and I started discovering the, kind of the roots of music, of popular music anyway. <clears throat> so, you know, blues, folk, folk styles of music like blues and country and bluegrass, old time. And
0: where in, and all, where in the U.S. was this taking place right And Where'd you go to school? Where'd you <clears throat> grow up?
1: I, I, well, that would have, early on, let's see, my first two years were at Presbyterian College in South Carolina. And then I ended up back in my hometown of Macon, Georgia, and graduated from uh, Mercer University. All right. And by the time I graduated, I just started—I was already sort of moonlighting as a college student. And um, and by the time I got out of college, that was the—that was the. Um, the, the road of least resistance. So I just started, you know, playing in bars and taverns and parties wherever I could learn, earn 50 bucks a night, you know, and,
0: and was this, and in, there began my career. <laughs> is this in Georgia? You were kind of hopping around that
2: sort of, the... yeah,
1: yeah. We had a little circuit. I, I, I played solo and sometimes with a trio, um, we called ourselves uncle Ernie. Uh, this was throughout my twenties and, uh, and it was a school of hard knocks. I was, we, I, we were playing, you know, from one bar to another and, um, all through middle Georgia and over into South Carolina down there on the coast and so we had kind of a circuit where we would return to the same place about every 2 months or so and um you know we were just a, a typical good time in bar band and um and it's it's where I learned the ropes it's a, it's a hard way to learn.
0: Well, I I, I would
1: I, encourage your listeners to get an education. Yeah,
0: well, I definitely know uh, I I definitely I've been a bar band for decades myself. So there's yeah, You def-
1: know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's a, I mean it is a, it is a, it Actually, it's a great proving ground, you know, um, especially if you want to be a performer and, and learn how to deal with an audience. Uh, yeah, I mean, with an audience that could care less whether you're there or not. <laughs> or
0: or that wants to engage with you in a good or a bad way. So, I mean, there's so, right. so many things that you don't learn in music school. Uh, that's you, you that's learn, right. learn all the good stuff, and then you have to throw away half of that when you're...
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: But,
1: <laughs> yeah, learning how to handle hecklers. That would be one chapter in my book, uh, handling heckle- hecklers.
0: So you were playing guitar in the band? Uh, when did you pull out the harmonica, or has that always been part of your uh,
1: your life? No, uh, it, it came really by the time I, I was in starting college. Um, I, uh, I saw a couple of friends messing around with them one day, and, and by this time I, you know, I was already... I, had, I think, I, yeah, I had tried the harmonica when I was like 10 or 11 because John Lennon, you know, played. And, yeah. and um, But I just couldn't figure anything out about it at that age, but I, I still had it. So when I saw my friends making, you know, a, a little headway with it, I went and, and found that old Marine band and pulled it out and started messing with it. And I guess after about 10 years of playing guitar and singing and learning a little bit of the rudiments of music i started kind of figuring out the instrument uh, at least you know the mechanics of it and then it was uh just a matter of technique trying to figure out all those cool things like bending notes and you know train whistles and rhythms and stuff like that and uh, i just got hooked um before long it was um it was so portable i could take it anywhere and Um, and and practice anywhere.
0: When you you started, did you just have one, you know, like the C harp or whatever it was, you know?
1: Yeah, it was probably like a C, and I messed around with that. And then, you know, once I found out that it was a diatonic instrument, and I was going to have to, you know, have more, uh, then I just started buying it and, um, you know, getting whatever I needed. And and, you know, before long, I had a full set. And, I mean, I'd say within about four or five years, it was becoming a, a calling card for me in in the middle Georgia area. Did you so ever seek
0: would... out any, uh, you know, training? Like, say, hey, show me some licks or, or, or someone to help you along? Or was this just woodshedding late at night listening to records? Uh,
1: you know what? It was, back in that day, it was kind of hard to find, like, you know, like good blues records where you would hear some of the great... Uh, blues stylists like a, you know, a little Walter or Sonny Boy Williamson or any of these pioneering blues masters. So yeah, I, I mean, basically I could, I could find uh, something here and there, like I, a Paul Butterfield record, or I might find, um, you know, listen to the Rolling Stones and try to figure out what Mick Jagger was doing. And they were playing pretty basic stuff, but cool things that I wanted to learn. But I think the first big jump for me was discovering Charlie McCoy. Um, I, uh, and, and a guy, and also Sonny Terry. Those were the two first really big influences on me. And I could get their records. I could find them. So, so it was, then it was just a matter of just playing those records over and over and trying to figure out what they were doing. I, this... I got a little book. The only book that out there for people who didn't read music, um, and wanted to play harmonica was, uh, one called, um, Blues harp by Tony Glover, and uh, it was—I mean, literally the only thing on the market. And um, and in it, he would talk about all these great, you know, blues innovators, harmonica innovators, and so slowly but surely, I would—I'd find something and and you know, just play it till uh, till the grooves turn white. You know, (laughs) trying to figure out how they were doing what they were doing.
0: And were you uh, writing songs at this point? Have you, had you started? Yeah, to...
1: yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, a, you know, by the time I was 20 or so, I'd started trying to, you know, write a little bit more. And, um, and the acoustic music was really uh, becoming my passion. So I was, I was really, um, I mean, when I would try to write a song, I would try to sound like, you know, James Taylor or, uh, you know, or any of the other more acoustic-based acts out there uh also discovered bluegrass around that time so um and mainly through the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's album um Will the Circle Be Unbroken that introduced me to that this whole world of uh of, again pioneering kind of um bluegrass people like Earl Scruggs and um Jimmy Martin and um Doc Watson all these great players and so you know I was I was probably you know just developing more as it, it, along those style stylistic um, ways you know
0: So I guess you know this being way back then, <laughs> uh, yeah. it, recording songs was not something that you know nowadays you can just open up your heck, oh, you can yeah. open up your phone and just start a little demo and, and walk away. But back then, I'm assuming yeah, that uh, you were writing down world. songs yeah. on pieces of paper and remembering them. At what point did you were you able to start making a, a recording, or, or or when did you did you go to Nashville? Like, tell what happened next.
1: You know, you're right. It was such a different world. That was such a holy grail to you know to be able to get a recording contract. It was. I mean, there were a lot of gatekeepers to get through to, before you could find yourself with that opportunity. And along the way, you might find a way to, you know, somebody that had a reel-to-reel recorder who could, you know, come capture a performance in a bar where you were playing. And I still actually have some old cassette tapes and things that uh, from, you know, homemade stuff we did. Mm-hmm. And I made a few demos uh, towards the end of the 70s and early 80s. By this time, I was really thinking, you know, it might be time to go to Nashville and, and see if I can really make it. And... um But, you know, let me jump ahead, because about 1983, I got a job um, playing with Jerry Reed, a country music star. So that moved me to to Nashville. And by this time, I, I had, you know, some decent demo stuff that I'd done in Macon, Georgia, where I was from. And I brought that with me. And, you know, I just started... Trying to meet people, you know, publishers and producers, and and I continued to make demos and all that. You know, I just did what people normally did when they came to town. They were just like pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, meeting people, or playing showcases wherever you could. And and uh, after I, I, during that, it was a four year job I had with Jerry Reed. And by the end of that period, I had also been developing as a songwriter. And mainly a songwriter of um, of gospel music. Uh, Chris, I, I had become a Christian about the time I moved to Nashville, so I was writing a lot about my faith, and um, it came to the attention of a you know a mover and a shaker in Christian music, and um, and he gave me an opportunity to record my first album. His name was Bob McKenzie, and okay. he had worked with everybody from. Um, the Gaithers to the Imperial. I mean, he just recorded everybody, and he'd been the president of record labels and all that. So it was it was a great way to get my foot in the door of a world that I really didn't know much about at all. With Christian music, um, all, you know, all my training was from secular um, sources and. But uh anyway I think that's why he liked me because I was I was kind of a little bit unpredictable in the way I was writing songs. And,
0: <laughs> so when um, you when you recorded your first record were you still also just uh, were you a session guy too at this point because there's lots of crossover with being a musician yeah. you got to do everything you can to yeah,
1: no, I mean I I would do an occasional session, but you know the harmonica is a real specialty instrument, so there's there's not a lot of call for it for one thing, even in even in a town like Nashville. And uh and even though I'm a guitar player, I'm not I'm not at a level where people would call me for a, you know, a session. You know, I can play on my stuff and
2: that's
1: <laughs> that's about all I would hire me for. <laughs> um but yeah, I was getting a little experience in the studio and um um, but I mean getting that first break to go in and record you know a long playing record and work with a producer that was just like gold I couldn't believe it and um, and i and I recorded you know eleven original songs and and uh, kind of, you know that kind of started me down that road um, he also he, he it was kind of a two record deal that I signed because the guy really liked my harmonica playing and he wanted to do an album of, you know, traditional and familiar uh, hymns, spirituals, um, you know, the kind of, kind of thing that would appeal to uh, a, an audience, a Christian audience out there, just to hear, you know, how great thou art, or whatever, on the harmonica. So that was the second album. Was that and both of those albums really kind of uh, gained me a little bit of attention, and I started touring with the Gaithers about that same time. And again, because Bob was a good friend with Bill Gaither and introduced us, and Bill kind of liked me for the same reason that Bob did. And uh, and then that was another big break because you know, the Gaithers were big in that world, and um, <clears throat> to be, right. you know, to have that have a chance to play to an audience from that platform was um, was just uh, a great break for me.
0: Right, and they have those homecoming shows, you know, where you've, you've
2: been on. Yeah, that, that eventually,
1: that hadn't even started, that was another five years later, but yeah, I mean, once that started going in the 90s, that just continued to give me exposure. by this time, I, I, my, I didn't have a record label anymore. I was already, you know, whatever records I was going to make, I was going to do independently. <clears throat> so, so it was great to have, you know, again, this uh, exposure that the Gaithers could give you through these really successful videos.
0: And is this how you met Mark Lowry?
1: I, I actually met him a few years before that. He started touring with the Gaithers about a year after I did. And... um so we got to know each other uh, as a part of that tour.
0: Well, and you're know, like I said, um, you wrote, uh, the, uh, of all, the, you've written so many songs, but this song, uh, Mary Did You Know, has a, such an interesting story because I, I've heard uh, Mark's version and I've heard your version of how you guys kind of wrote, you know, here's my part, here's my part, uh, you know, singing over the phone or whatever. I mean, how <laughs> how did the song actually come together?
1: Yeah, we were uh, we were out on the road with the Gaithers, and it was uh, my recollection. (laughs) You know how it is when you're trying to remember what happened 30 years ago. Mark's recollection and mine vary on a few points, but the way I remember it, we were in this hotel room. A whole bunch of us had like like a clean up room where we were all. It was after a a gig, and, and we were about to get on the bus and drive. You know. 15 hours through the night or whatever to the next gig. So it was a big thing of like, okay, let's t- all, everybody take a shower and get cleaned up, get back on the bus, and, and then we'll get going. And Mark was sitting over in the corner with a, with a legal pad and was just writing furiously. And finally he finished and tore this thing off and threw it at me and said, hey, see what you can do with that. And so I picked it up, and there was a note to me at the top, lyrics at the bottom, and the note said, "Dear buddy, below are some incredible words I penned some years ago. Please come up with some God-inspired music and make for us a very profitable hit." <laughs> <laughs> and he signed it in the clutches of the cross, Mark Lowry. And so, you know, I just laughed at the, at the note and said, "I'll look at this later and." And Mark said, well, don't lose it now. That's good. (laughs) I thought it was probably, you know, knowing Mark, I just figured it was some comedy, you know, novelty song or something. And um, about a week later, I I came across it uh, at the house and unpacking some stuff or whatever and read the lyric for the first time. And it was a day, it was at the end of a day that I had been playing my I'd just been playing music all day, which was kind of rare at the time. I I didn't practice a lot back then, but I had been playing a lot in minor in minor keys too. I had been playing, um, you know, these old Doc Watson mountain ballads like Sadie Grove and Shady Grove. I mean, and um, Little Sadie, and and so I just I had this sort of minor mode bent um, that made me just immediately think of of that opening phrase when i saw the you know that uh, his phrase mary did you know just repeat it over and over and so you know if you get a decent idea you can just kind of run with it and if it's a good one that's the song will just about write itself so um so it, it was real you know within about 15 minutes i was calling um mark up and just to see if he liked the direction i was going in and, and he he really did so over the next couple of days i you know, I finished it up and got it. We made a little demo, you know, on a on a boombox on a cassette tape. And and Mike English, Michael English, was looking for songs for his debut album. And Brown Bannister was um, producing it. So anyway, um, Mark took it over the, to Brown or somebody, and they liked it. And it made the it it made the list. And and I think it was became like the second. Second or third single released off that record, and that kind of got the ball rolling. That, that you know, within a within a few years, um, Kathy Matea and Kenny Rogers and all these you know people outside of Christian music even started recording this thing, and it it sort of got a a life of its own after that
0: it and it still has a life I mean what you got like I mean even Celia oh, Green just, and, and Mary J. Blige and...
1: yeah I mean <clears throat> it, it's astounding how many great artists have recorded it and done and, and really done some amazing versions I mean Pentatonix a few years ago I didn't even know who they were. Same thing with CeeLo Green, <laughs> you know. And this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. <laughs> like, So I think I've heard that name. What do they do? And, you know, and, and I'd go listen to the results and I just could not believe, uh, you know, how this song just continued to, um, uh, lend itself to new and, and, and great treatments. Um, so, and that's, I remember, I, I got one, could I tell you one more story sure, about this song? Sure, yeah, yeah, When Michael English recorded this at uh, the first time, you know, I had done my little folky version of it uh, on the demo tape, and I remember um, somebody on the session told me that they had recorded you know, worked on this song that I was a part of and I s and I said, Oh yeah, that's great. I'm so excited about it being on the record. And he said, Yeah, we we did kind of this cool um Phil Collins kind of treatment to it and I just I was just like inside I was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, what have they done to my song? you know and and then I like avoided Michael English every time I'd see him, you know, he'd say, Have you heard the song? I said, Yeah, no, not yet you know and uh Anyway, I finally heard it, and I was dreading what I was going to hear, and then I just loved it. It was just such a cool version. And they took it somewhere totally different than I had even imagined the song could go. And right away, I just realized, wow, this is what you want as a songwriter. You want to be a part of a song that is not limited, that lends itself to various treatments and arrangements and all yeah well so it's been that kind of song yeah
0: yeah well like like i said you know it's it's the it's it's the song all the stuff that happens around it production or interpretation or the you know even styles that i mean it's a it's a great song that could live in every one of those pockets and um and that song means a lot to my family here and of course to everyone around the world so thanks y'all for writing that and um I just want to let you know, we we sang it at the bar. You know, like I said, I'm a bar musician. (laughs) I still play down on Broadway in Nashville. And I don't know, Uh, it might have decade ago, I did a, invited a bunch of people to do like a a live stream concert. See this, we were live streaming back then. Um, And Mark Lowry came because he was friends of the guys that brought the camera crew. And, um, uh, you know, he was sitting in the back, and I'm like, "Hey, Mark, come on up!" You know, sing "Mary, Did You Know?" In the you know, and most of the people in that bar, half of them weren't believers or didn't even know. It, they just and but they knew the song, and it was a great moment. So uh, the song has been performed in holy places and unholy places.
1: <laughs> yes, and and by yours truly as well. So.
0: <laughs> well so and then of course you, you mentioned doc watson so i mean not to jump too far ahead but i guess yeah jumping decades later i mean you've even got to jam with some of your your mm-hmm. uh your um heroes yeah
1: yeah that was um i never would have dreamed that could happen but uh, around 2002 i recorded a, an album that was really sort of a celebration of my musical roots and uh uh, we, it was called Rufus, uh, which was a name I went by when I was um, in Jerry Reed's band. Um, there was already a buddy in the band, so I used my middle name to avoid confusion on stage. And um, and it kind of stuck. A lot of people still from that that met me back in those days, um, like Scotty, like your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and my pastor at the time, he still calls me Rufus. And That's funny. <laughs> but anyway, um, a copy of this somehow got into the hands of um, Doc Watson, and uh, and then I got to meet Doc a few months later, and he had loved the record. Um, and, you know, Doc was a great harmonica player himself, so he was really uh, complimentary my harmonica play, and, and ended up inviting me to um, Merlefest, big, um, you know, roots festival over mm-hmm. in um, North Carolina. And it was to you know, to play with him and a bunch of his friends that were gonna just, you know, do blues and and, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that. I mean it was that was probably the biggest dream come true that I could ever have and um got to do that several years in a row with Doc and get to know him a little bit and um yeah, I just uh you know, as far as I was concerned, my career didn't need to do another thing. <laughs> it had taken me to Doc Watson, and that was far enough. Oh, wow.
0: And then you, you even got to do some jazz stuff, right? Like with... Um...
1: Oh, with Charlie Hayden. Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't jazz. I mean, even though he's a jazz giant, um, he actually had roots in um, country music. He grew up in in Arkansas and uh, in a musical family that was on the radio back in the 30s and 40s. And um, he was the sm- he was the youngest one in this musical family, and um, and they called him Cowboy Charlie. He would come on when he was like two or three years old and sing a little song, just to, you know, the cute part of the show. And and then when he was a teenager, he contracted um, tuberculosis, and and it kind of ended his music for a while. He couldn't sing and it. It it um, it kind of uh, destroyed his singing voice, and so he part of his therapy was learning the upright bass, and then he went on to become this, you know, just amazing uh, bass innovator mm-hmm. and um, kind of a legend in those circles. I didn't even know who he was, but a, a friend named Mark Fain, who was a bass player for Ricky Skaggs. Had, had met Charlie, he was a big fan, and Charlie told him he'd always wanted to come to Nashville and pay homage to his roots. And so um, he said, Well, man, let me help you do that. So, you know, long story short is, uh, you know, Mark went around getting the musicians who could help him do all these old Carter family songs and this kind of music he grew up on. And, and, uh, and, and Charlie had a musical family. He had triplet uh, daughters um, that uh, sang, his wife sang, his son did some music. And uh, he wanted to bring all of that together on one project. And the project was called Ramblin' Boy. He had all these great guests like uh, Vince Gill and, and um, um, Pat Metheny and um, uh, uh, even Jack Black. Who was married who's married to one of his daughters <laughs> wow. came and sang on the record. And uh
2: Now I've got no money, got no place to stay, got no place to lay in my head, Chickens hands grow for day, Yonder sits a turtle dove sitting on yonder pine true uh, love and I may weep for mine fare the well old Joe
1: Clark fare the well I say fare well old Joe Clark i It's just a, it's an amazing record and I think it was put up for a Grammy yeah. I don't think it won but it was uh, I was so proud to be a part of it because uh, you know the the players that were on there were just you know top top level players uh, people like you know Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush and Baila Fleck and wow. Brian Sutton and all these all my heroes were we're playing, so to be able to get on a couple of songs with them and um and uh it was yeah another, another dream come true,
0: well, it was a dream come true to have you bring your harmonica on uh this uh album of my dad's you know it's funny everyone who's been involved has only been slightly uh brought in on what it's about because uh, it was a piece together at a time it was an old musical my dad wrote uh, back in the uh, mid to late eighties uh just on a cassette recorder and then set it aside it's a modernized version of the book of acts so if it's set it's actually set in your neck of the woods it's set down in valdosta and 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 atlanta and uh you know the 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 settings of jerusalem and everything are all kind of transposed into this southern kind of thing and um this show called kingdom come is is the story of of the beginnings of the church if it happened in the 50s you know in america you know in the south right uh so the music is bluegrass and country and southern rock and even we've got some r&b and uh gospel in there so uh i definitely
1: you know when i came over i don't know if i asked this then or not but let me ask you did it's, it's, it's reminiscent of um, the Cotton Patch Gospel.
0: It's a complete inspiration of Clarence Jordan's, and of course uh, the the show that became Harry Chapin's kind of deal. Very similar. Right. It's expanded yeah. because that show was was. The book of it was a cotton patch. It was a gospel. So it was the
1: life yeah, of the gospel, the Yeah. Life, so this life. this is the next the next chapter, right? It's
0: kind of part two, but it, yeah. it's, it has a lot of similarities to it, except that that it's a full cast and a full ensemble of musicians, where like the original was just basically a narrator and a bluegrass, you know, Greek chorus behind him. You know, so right. Yeah. My, yeah. my dad took this idea and ran with it, and uh, so we've got you know some you know there's a there's a moment where the apostle paul before he becomes paul you know he's he's out there rustling up trouble so we did a charlie daniel's kind of song and uh that's one of the tunes you did you know it's it's yeah. you know he's out there being a you know whipping open tail and and uh so we've got you in there bringing in some cool, you know, licks, you know. I mean, there's a lot of there's a couple of, you know, hoedown songs, you know, where there's a there's a guy that's hanging outside the the varsity in Atlanta and he gets healed and he starts up there tap dancing. And so we got some, you know, we've got uh some really nice ballads, you know, where, you know, I needed lead lines. You know, I I basically took took the took the record and took my dad's cassette, and then just made an acoustic guitar bottom track that would either be a demo or would be the the foundation of what we built off. It ended up being the foundation of what we built off, these little raggedy acoustic guitar things that are now tucked beneath the greats of Buddy Green and Chad Jeffers and <laughs> Gordon Kennedy and uh, Glenn Duncan, you know, these guys that brought their um, professional because I don't know bluegrass, you know, so that's, yeah. we, we got Glenn Duncan to actually be the entire bluegrass ensemble for a lot of these songs. He'd bring his mandolin, and he'd bring his fiddle, you know, and then, um, I, of course, I played upright bass as best I could. Um, I, I've been a bass player for, for decades, but I just got into double bass about four years ago seriously so this was my first chance to like figure out how to get a good recording sound you know how to man i'm just gonna bow you know my dad's like could you do some bow and stuff on that like oh man okay so it was a training for me i started taking some serious lessons but we built built track by track you know so you know i definitely had the rhythm section covered with you know a lot of stuff that i laid down and that um and then chad would bring that little dobro kind of piece there and then I needed some lead lines which would basically you know you and Glenn kind of covered a lot of the the, mel- the melodical stuff and then that was yeah. basically you know, you know my dad played some organ because my dad's a, a b3 player so we've got yeah. moments where there's a there's a black gospel number that r- breaks out in the middle of the show and just it goes to town and I actually <laughs> brought in almost you know little under a dozen people or uh, into the studio and we overdubbed him about five times to make it sound like a full church, you know. So,
1: well, I I won't let you short uh, short sell yourself because um, you're a great musician, Jeff, and so is your dad. And I know this was a great labor of love for you. And putting something together like that from scratch is no easy project either. So you got you got production chops as well, and. Uh, and I just I just think it's such a cool project, and these have always been the kind of things that I was glad to be included on. Like, you know, the Charlie Hayden thing. Nobody in the jazz world wanted Charlie Hayden to do a, a country music project, but Charlie wanted to do it. And it's been, it was one of the coolest things I was ever a part of. This is the same nature, um, in that this is something your dad had been sitting on since he was, you know, a young man. And for you to help bring that to life here, um, I just think it's a beautiful thing, um, and to, and to get all those, you know, all those good talents on on there, and 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 see it come to life. is it, fun. That's a, it's there's, still there's no better reason to do a project. Than
0: yeah, there. well, it you know, it's still coming together. Thank you for those kind words, and and uh, I I'm, where it's at right now, I'm super proud of. We've got a you know we've 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 documented it now. It's recorded. It's you know what <laughs> what happens next. You know, we'd love to play it. You know. Can't right yeah. now because no one's really going out to see music. Can't, but one day, one uh, day. <laughs> and if we ever we ever get a little venue to do it, I'm calling you up. Come bring your harp and let's uh, let's play through some tunes. I still have well, the charts. I hope so that don't happens. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm I'm ready to do some gathering and playing somewhere. I know yeah, we I all don't... we
0: all are. You know, and this yeah. is you know we're this goes back to kind of how, you know, it's amazing listening to you writing Mary Did You Know in that sort of, you know, you were doing it over on that side, he had already done something this way. I mean, sometimes that's the way songs are made. But I think for the most part, we as musicians want to be in community, we want to be playing, you know, I have more fun playing live than I do sitting here overdubbing myself a dozen times to make it sound like a band.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't, I've gotten on, I get on YouTube all the time and we'll play along with something I, wow, that's I see cool. on YouTube. Yeah. I'll learn a song, you know, I'll see it, I, you know, be a fiddle tune that I've been thinking about. Well, I wonder if I can do that on the harmonica. And so I have a good time doing that. But you're right, nothing takes the place of, you know, jamming with a real person, making music and, and, and having fun or, or seeing your songs connect with an audience. You know, it's, uh, That, uh, that's really the only thing I ever wanted to do. Making records was kind of cool to be able to document some of this stuff, but it was never my, um, never my forte. My my forte was to stand up in front of an audience and, and Hey, let's have a, let's have a good time with some music here.
0: Well, and when you do that, we all do, man. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, Thank you so much for, for taking the time to just chat with me about this and, and, and let everybody know, um about you who didn't know they should uh, and uh <laughs> well, and all the great stories
1: <laughs> thank you it's it's a privilege and you know your dad is uh he's an amazing musician but he's an amazing man and uh it's been so great to know him i i'll never forget for our first meeting we were on a we were under a tent out in front of um Christ Presbyterian Church as a part of a church musical he had just moved to town I was already good friends with Scotty, his, uh, his brother, and um, and to see him get up and MC this show, he was just like a, a natural performer. And now to have been able to find out why, because again, man had serious credentials. Um, you know, playing with the likes of Marvin Gaye and the Four Tops and all this other stuff back in the in the day of uh, Motown and soul music. Uh, so, you know, he's. He's been one of these guys, and then and then later on, to become an educator um, and do what he did at Franklin High School for so many years yeah. as a as the music teacher. He used to bring me in every once in a while to play, you know, for the for his classes. And I was always just like, uh, just amazed at how he had uh, sort of traded in the the performance cap for. Um, for a teaching job, you know, he was... Uh, and you
0: know, he really loved it, too. I mean, and he's retired yeah. from teaching now, and he's back to just kind of wanting to get creative. But I watched him be a teacher, and I, I, I saw him so because he taught me at Brentwood Academy for a couple of years before he went to Franklin. And he uh, just, he had this... He, he has, I mean, he, he'd still teach if he fell up to it, you know, but... Uh, yeah,
1: he was, well, he was a great <laughs> educator, and he had, you know, he had what it takes to... Put a spark in those students and get them to think, you know, of you know where their where where their creative bent was taking them, you know. And so, I always, I always love that that he was a natural born educator as well as a performer.
0: Well, i i I think we all need mentors, and and whether it's a teacher, whether it's just a fellow bandmate or someone. Uh, thinking back of all those people that we have in our lives, uh, that because uh, we all can't do it by ourselves, and and that's again, I couldn't have done this making, piecing all this stuff together without you, so uh, thank well, you, thank you for doing what you do, because it was easy, you know, one or two takes, it was perfect, you know, and, and uh, it's fun, uh, and I know that we're going to see each other again and and, and do more stuff, and, and, uh, and, and of course, thank you again for being on the little podcast here.
1: Yeah, glad to be with you today, Jeff, and uh, God bless you with this project here.
0: You be well, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you again soon.
2: see the lover of your heart you've been too long pretending that he's not there turn around and see the one who's given all he's got a lot of love he wants to share Turn around and see the one who speaks your name He's never given up his gracious call Turn around and find your homesick feeling gone By giving it away you gain it all Never given it a try, but you will never bolder. You can't see someone face to face when you're looking over your shoulder.